1: When the fingerprints came back from the lab, one thing was finally clear. The kidnapper was definitely not a Rockefeller. He was Christian Karl Gerhardt a 47-year-old German immigrant who had come to America as a student in 1978. Shortly after his arrival, he disappeared into what the Boston District Attorney would call the longest con I've seen in my professional career. The elaborate, labyrinthine nature of Gerhard shape shape-shifting adventures from the time he set foot in this country as a 17-year-old student right up until his disappearance makes his story more bizarre than any gifted writer of fiction could possibly invent. Mark Seal is a contributing editor at Vanity
0: Fair and the author of the book Wildflower, An Extraordinary Life and Mysterious Death in Africa. His new book is The Man in the Rockefeller Suit, The Astonishing Rise and Spectacular Fall of a Serial Imposter. Thank you for joining me today, Mark.
1: Thank you. Great to be here. Mark,
0: this is such an interesting book because it it gets to the core of defining our identity and the power of story in our lives because this man that you talk about in this book was a gifted storyteller as are you telling his stories. This is kind of a meta story in a way.
1: Oh well thank you. Yeah this guy I mean he was amazing in his creation of identities. I mean Ivy League graduate, Wall Street bond broker, Hollywood producer, 13th Baronet and eventually Clark Rockefeller. I mean each one of these identities was increasingly more grandiose than the last well
0: he's such an interesting man too because he matured in america as i was reading this book i didn't kind of think about that till i finished it he came over here he was he was just a kid when he came over here and he had a kind of a troubled upbringing back in germany didn't he
1: yeah uh... well he was an only child for the first twelve years of his life and one of his friends said that he was already uh... creating identities for himself he would call the Motor Vehicle Department in Germany and say he was a millionaire hoping to uh, register a Rolls Royce and people would believe him. So yeah, I interviewed a lot of people in Germany who said he was seeking escape. He dreamed of coming to America at a very young age. Well, now
0: this is a, must have been a very interesting uh, story for you to research and one of the central aspects of your ability to write this book is a mysterious dossier of documents that you received.
1: Right. Tell us yeah. about that. Yeah, <laughs> no, it was in Boston that uh, that uh, someone gave me uh, some of the documents in the case, uh, you know, going stretching back to Germany and some of the Im- in the immigration papers. And then I was lucky all along the way because he was never a recluse this man was out there meeting people. The amount of people he met was astonishing and everywhere he went he left behind people who had stories to tell and all of them were more than willing to just tell everything they knew which was so great for me as a writer. Now
0: you had a personal connection to this story because it was a friend of yours who had met him and told you write about this man
1: exactly I got a call one afternoon and I was sitting outside working on another project and she said have you heard about Clark Rockefeller and it was a woman I know in New York who had met him at a gallery opening and he had uh, you know he had uh, followed her and tried to you know impress her and they went to lunch together and she said now he's kidnapped his daughter in Boston you have to write about this man and that night it was all over the evening news and I was hooked
0: now, this is such a what to me it really captivates me about this story is how much it is about story, and, and you not just telling stories but pursuing stories. So talk about uh, your once you decided to dive into this you had to go pretty far back in time didn't you
1: yeah well you know he had a I wrote about the the case in Vanity Fair magazine and I had gone to Boston and talked to people who knew him all along the way and then there was a trial when he went on trial for kidnapping and so I attended the trial and a lot of people testified uh, during the trial but At the same time, I felt like I was just beginning. So I had to start at the beginning, go back to Germany, and more or less retrace his steps along the way.
0: Now, when he came over here, he conned his own parents, didn't he?
1: (laughs) Yeah, in a way. What the investigators say is that when he landed in Boston in 1978, his parents had agreed to give him $250 a month month until he was settled, and he called his mother and said the airline had lost his luggage. Could she send more money, which she did? now she she was a somewhat troubled woman herself and he was an only child and kind of a spoiled child yeah like i said un- until 12 years his younger brother was 12 years younger than he was and so he people said that he had the run of the house that he would do things that most kids weren't able to do like go to the you know the forbidden stream and Bergen, this little town where people grow up and, and live their whole lives out. Uh, I went to the beer garden there where all the men, uh, the beer drinkers, all knew stories of him and his family and he, he stood out from the beginning. He was a prankster and a trickster and he was always seeking to be different and to escape. Now, uh, once he he
0: got over here, well, actually, even before he got over here, he was a fan of film noir, wasn't
1: he? Yes. The people, the (laughs) American couple who met him when he was hitchhiking in Germany and picked him up on the side of the road... Uh, and he invited them to spend the night at his house, which they did. And they said there was film equipment and projectors everywhere. He was a fan of film noir, especially the films of Alfred Hitchcock, they said. And at the same time, he, the next morning before they left, he said, could you give me your address so we could exchange uh, greetings at Christmas? And they did. And unbeknownst to them, he used them as his sponsor to come to America. They didn't find that out till many years later.
0: Well, this uh, theme of film noir keeps cropping up through the book. And one of the things that struck me that you as a writer, uh, who had originally just was looking into this kind of kidnapping case, all of a sudden must have found yourself writing what proves to be a true life noir that's more twisted, I think, than anything Alfred Hitchcock ever came up with.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, the, the story you couldn't invent. I mean every step along the way especially when he gets to California and he becomes Christopher Chichester uh, who said he was related to the Mountbatten family of England and the Chichester family of England and he passed out a card saying he was a 13th baronet and there was a family crest on it and then we have this missing persons case which makes the story even uh, turn even darker.
0: Well now One of the things that, uh, as a writer investigating this and writing this, this is a very, very complicated book and the story is, of course, incredibly complicated because the guy's changing identities, he's changing his stories all the time. But when we read this, you make it possible for us to immerse ourselves in the story and experience it as a really entertaining and gripping narrative that has a lot to say about how we think about ourselves in these times. Talk about how you put this together. I mean, did you have like project files and and, uh, Excel spreadsheets to to figure out this timeline? Uh, You know,
1: you almost need a database just to follow all the different identities. No, I think it was a lot simpler than that. I just wrote it uh, as if the reader was with me following this trail and that way you can learn about him one step at a time of course we you know it starts at the trial and then it you know it begins with this kidnapping of his daughter because if he had not kidnapped the daughter in Boston in the summer of 2008 he would probably li- be living a pretty leisurely life right now as Clark Rockefeller but because he abducted the child his wife had divorced him he lost custody of his, of his beloved daughter who he loved uh, and because he kidnapped the child off the street in Boston, it blew the lid off 30 years of, 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 uh, of being an imposter. So if that hadn't happened, he probably would still be okay that's one of the things that we see a lot of in his story
0: now let's ratchet back to, to okay. California and the reason right. I, I'm interested in this case is particularly um, he lived in uh, San Marino and you yeah. I love the way you describe San Marino
1: with super Marino San Marino yeah. and Sub Marino. right yes <laughs> you have to picture this place it's like Norman Rockwell America only 12 miles outside of LA and you, you could see why he chose it it's a town of true believers uh, it's a town of very wealthy matrons and and a very wealthy church all of which you know and he gravitated to that
0: he he church is another theme that comes up here he was a he was a smart man and he knew how to get it one way to get yourself integrated into community like that is to go to the church and say i want to join
1: he would go to the wealthiest church in san marino it was the church of our savior and they would have you know free coffee and dessert after the services and he would always show up in his you know Ivy League dress passing out his cards saying introducing himself as Christopher Mountbatten Chichester you know extending his hand and kissing the ladies hands and he became a little mini celebrity in that town and he was a real charmer too, he charmed all these
0: ladies whom I understand were somewhat reluctant to talk to him Yeah, no, they
1: were all, they were great, some mm-hmm. of them didn't want their names used but mm-hmm. they're very friendly, pe- friendly people there and uh, you know they're it's just a great town and you know they were bamboozled by this uh, young man this mysterious stranger who showed up one day you know who was so different than everyone else claiming to be royalty and uh, but at the same time they're happy to they were happy to talk about it and
0: because one of the things that that one of the reasons that i think he was able to get away with these extravagant claims was because he was smart enough to integrate himself into the communities where people were rich and yeah. were famous. So if somebody yeah. famous showed up who they didn't happen to know, it kind of made sense that he might be there.
1: Yeah, you know, and he, even had, he always had a lot of time on his hands. You know, he would study in libraries, so he got to – he's self-educated. So when he was in San Marino uh, as Christopher Mountbatten in Chichester, he also found time to go to USC Film School. And he always had a script under his arm, and he was, you know, a big man on campus, even though people say he wasn't actually registered as a student.
0: <laughs> and he, he, uh, that was the beginning of one of his identities as a film producer, wasn't it?
1: Yeah. So what happened was after he left San Marino, Uh,
0: I don't want to go there yet because one of the things I want to talk about
1: is Didi Sohus
0: and that whole situation. Yeah,
1: okay, you want to do that? Yeah, so
0: tell us about where he was living in.
1: Yeah, well, he was living in a variety of houses. They don't know exactly where he lived in the beginning uh, because in San Marino, there are no motels, no hotels even in in San Marino because they're outlawed. Uh, there's no liquor you know you can't buy a drink there until recently back then when he was there it was like you can only get a coffee you know there's all these city ordinances about you can't leave a car parked in the front yard uh, in your front uh, driveway for a certain amount of time no chain link fences I mean this is a real pristine place so he was living in the end at 1920 Lorraine Road who was he lived in a guest quarters behind the home of Dee Dee Sohus who, according to Unsolved Mysteries, which did a segment many years about the case, was an alcoholic. And so he was living in the back um, apartment when her son, John, and his new wife, Linda, moved in. And this was a very young, naive couple who were into Dungeons and & Dragons, and John was a low-level computer operator, and Linda was a illustrator of science fiction Horses and unicorns, and she worked at a bookstore called Dangerous Visions.
0: You know, I'm actually familiar with that store. I actually think I probably met her.
1: Oh, really? Because
0: I went to that store during the the mid-'80s many times. Wow, well, you wouldn't have
1: missed her because she was like six feet something tall, very big woman, and Mm -hmm. John was just the opposite. He was like five foot tall, Coke bottle glasses, very slight. So one day this couple... Said they were going. They had been hired by the government to go on a top secret mission, which was very strange to all their friends because, I mean, they were just not qualified to do anything for the government. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then shortly after that, they disappeared.
0: Now that became a segment that en- eventually ended up on uh, unsolved mysteries. And it, it struck me as after I read this was that uh, this guy in two different identities ended up on two different TV true crime shows, didn't he? <laughs> yeah,
1: the Unsolved Mysteries, there was one line that kind of summed it up. Robert Stack walks toward the camera and says about this, the disappearance of this couple, investigators found a cast of characters that have, could have come from the mind of a mystery writer. And he says the most curious individual in the case was a young man who called himself Christopher Chichester. Shortly after the disappearance of John and Linda, Christopher Chichester ends up in Greenwich, Connecticut driving their pickup truck. By then, the you know, the, he had a different name, Christopher Crow. He said he was the producer and director of a new TV series called Alfred Hitchcock Presents in Greenwich. Again, he shows up in the church. This time it was Christ Church in Greenwich, where the family of George Bush actually worshiped. And he said he was a young TV producer. He wanted to make friends. Pretty soon he's got a job at SN Phelps and Company, one of the leading brokerage firms in that area. And uh, what was curious is after they checked his records, many, you know, after a while, they discovered he'd given them a social security number, and when they looked it up, it turned out to be for David Berkowitz, who was, uh, you know, the name of the serial killer known as Son of Sam, who haunted New York in the '70s.
0: I guess we can cue the psycho violin uh, s- strike right now, can't we? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, and, and then it should uh,
1: have raised some warnings there. <laughs> it should have, but soon after he failed upwards, and he's working in the World Financial. Uh, center near the World Trade Center for a a corporate bond uh, firm a major one and not only is he working there he's running the whole department that's filled with seasoned bond salesmen uh, and you know someone who actually you know worked for the uh, Federal Reserve at one point and uh, he's making upwards of a hundred thousand a year I mean, this is a smart man. He passes the Series Seven exam for securities uh, brokers. Anyone who works in the securities industry, and sometimes uh, business school graduates have to take it two and three times. He passes it the first time. You
0: know, when you talk about him failing upwards, this is a, something that I thought think he did throughout his life uh, in America, which I kind of called laddering, where he would just get a grip on one rung, and while he's got that grip on one rung, he's already looking at that second run and he's already manufacturing the next identity so when he lets before he lets go to this one he's already got his hand on this one yes and he was a really smart man i mean very smart but he kept sabotaging himself didn't he
1: well you know in the end yes with the kidnapping but in the beginning he was he was pretty able you know talented at moving from one identity to the next and not leaving uh you know enough of a trace because well i mean the the police were looking to question him when this uh when this he tried to sell this truck Mm -hmm. that belonged to the missing persons uh missing couple but at that point it wasn't a high priority because they there was no evidence of foul play at that point they were just looking to question him and uh And by then, you know, he was Christopher Crowe. They tried to question him, but he never would come to the interview. They were unable to get him to come to an interview, the investigators said. So, uh, and finally, he disappeared for believed to be four years.
0: Well, you know, one of the things that's so interesting is that uh, he would just tell these whoppers. I mean, just really wild stories about, you know, being a Rockefeller and you know about to be on the Federal Reserve he's almost a secret agent going to Paris you name it he told it and people believed it and I think one of the key lines in this entire book is the guy who who says a con man gets by
1: because you want to believe what he's telling you that's
0: how a con works
1: that's right yeah he when he emerged as Clark Rockefeller this was his crowning creation (laughs) because he was you know he what an identity and what and because he was a rockefeller he said people wanted to believe that he was eccentric because they their picture of a rockefeller was an eccentric individual and so he really fed into that he said he went to yale at 14 he said his parents died at an early age leaving leaving him to live in their home on sutton place in new york city um He said that uh, he only ate white foods, white bread, white turkey, a special kind of cookie, the Nantucket. He said he never ate in restaurants or stayed in hotels, preferring the accommodations and uh, dining rooms of his private clubs, which indeed he belonged to. Uh, In later years, he said that he was going to be appointed to the uh, Federal Reserve and I mean, just outlandish uh, things that people would chalk up, well, hey, he's eccentric, he's a Rockefeller. And most outrageous is he had a, this collection of of masterpieces of uh, modern art, and pe- everyone believed they were real. Well, you know,
0: uh, one of the things he used to to get around in New York, you know, church was one of his great in inns in New York he used this uh, the these private clubs yes. where you could join the rich and famous yeah you know, and there's this kind of uh uh, club exchange and uh, you used you used the same con to get in didn 't you I
1: did in one of them, yes, because <laughs> I wanted to see the Algonquin Club where he lived in Boston, and uh, so I did exactly I had a, said I was a reciprocal membership from a club in in Colorado, and they said, as long as you have an American Express card, you can come and it was really fascinating to see see this place where he uh, where he more or less held forth. He was a director of this club it 's one of the Biggest, oldest clubs in Boston, private clubs in Boston, but at the same time, he belonged or he had reciprocal memberships in all these other clubs across the Eastern Seaboard, which of course gives you immediate credence to a lot of people, especially the members of those clubs.
0: Well, uh, he also one of the things that interested me throughout all of this, he never had, you know, made too many advances towards women. I mean, and he must, and this I think is. It gets back to this process of him maturing. He seemed to always be too busy, um, you know, setting up his next identity, although there was some indication that he might have tried to seduce uh, Linda, the girl who worked at the bookstore.
1: Yeah, that's what, uh, well, according to uh, a couple of people in San Marino, Jan of Sweden, especially <laughs> the hair, the Swedish cowboy hair stylist who got to know uh, him as Christopher Chichester that's his uh, view of things and also the police at the time who investigated the case thought that he may have had a, something with Linda but they don't know that for sure so that's just the theories uh, that that were being held forth but he was married twice the first was to a woman in Wisconsin who he married uh, for a green card when he became a, a resident uh, you know American citizen and then he was married the second time to the very smart poised, intelligent Harvard MBA uh, who became his wife.
0: That's Sandy Boss, and that's such an interesting story because here's a woman who's more accomplished than most of us could ever hope to be, and uh, she falls for him hook, line, and sinker.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, like everyone else, she met him at church. Uh, He was a member then, or not a member, but uh, he worshiped at uh, Fifth Avenue St. Thomas Church, which is... The epicenter of Episcopalianism in New York. I mean, talk about bold. I mean, to emerge and say you're Clark Rockefeller at St. Thomas Church, where Mrs. Astor worshipped and some of the leading lights of New York City. So in a way, he was vetted by that church. And because he was under the arbor of God, people tended to believe, hey, he is who he says he is.
0: Now, it strikes me that... Um you got a lot of the, you know, you talk to a lot of these people. And when they ha- when they met him, they just believed him. And now after the fact, they're finding out that this is all a lie. So this is kind of, must have been an interesting experience for you and for them of kind of cognitive dissonance to, to find out on the TV or find out because you're knocking on their door yeah. that... The, that this man they knew as Christopher Chichester, as Clark Rockefeller, as,
1: you know, uh, what is it, uh, Chris Smith? Chip Smith. <laughs> Chip Smith. That was his final identity. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, you know, they were all in all walks of life. You know, after 30 years in America, can you imagine? He kidnaps the daughter, and all of a sudden there's a wanted poster. He, he banishes off the space of the earth with the daughter. Mm-hmm. He's got this elaborate plan where he set up people like, pawns in a chess game almost and one person ferries him here and another ferries him there then he go, you know, gets out in Grand Central Station in New York and he disappears but they put a wanted poster out and they had pictures of him people called from all over in San Marino they'll go I knew him as Christopher Chichester <laughs> in Greenwich I knew him as Christopher Crow in uh, Baltimore I knew him as Chip Smith because he had after before kidnapping before vanishing with his daughter he had set up another identity in baltimore as chip smith a high seas ship captain and he had bought a house in baltimore where he planned to live and uh, he told the realtor there uh, he was very particular about the name of the street where he would buy the house and he ended up buying a house on an appropriately named street it was called Ploy Street, P-L-O-Y, and that's where he planned to live.
0: Now, when he was uh, married to uh, Sandy Boss, he was living the high life. I mean, he had pretty much had everything, but he kind of went out and sabotaged himself with his little uh, uh, detour to Cornish.
1: Yeah, it was very curious, because you would think he would be keeping a low profile, but anything <laughs> but, he was, uh, you know, he would ride his Segway across the covered bridge with a hat that said Yale on it, he was feuding with a lot of the neighbors, you know, when they threw a garden party to welcome him to town, he went up to one of the the wives of the, of the state senator and said very dismissively, do you know what... Uh, you know modern uh, art abstract expressionism is of course she did she he he was feuding with uh, the senator when he bought the church there he was feuding with local art historians there I mean you know it was curious he was seemed to be falling apart a bit
0: now I and he also sabotaged his his own marriage I mean and we see this again and again throughout his life that he had a temper on him, and that was ultimately, it seems, his undoing.
1: Yeah. I mean, he, at the end, he seemed to be, you know, he had all these carefully constructed facades. Finally, he seemed to be falling apart, and, and it all culminated with the divorce when he could not, you know, prove who he, he was, and he uh, lost the custody of his daughter, and that led him to uh, the, his undoing, really. No. Uh, because as police say everything is one police investigator in Boston said everything in his life had been a lie except for the love of his daughter and when he lost his daughter he set up you know set out to get her back.
0: Now the love of his daughter I wanted to ask you about that because uh, the way you write it in the book leaves that open to some question. It. He seems to be somewhat narcissistic and ultimately to me uh, my reading of, of the book is that his love of his daughter was his last best ploy, the, his pitch in that. Because when she was when they were separated, he didn't ever see her.
1: Yeah, that was odd. Uh, so yeah, some of the pe- investigators questioned that. I felt like that it was real, and I felt that uh, he, you know, wanted. To, but you know, you never know with him because he's such a, um, you know, unique individual. I mean, like as the police, as the. DA in Boston said, the longest con he's seen in his professional career. Uh, I mean, this man is a very uh, intelligent, but also perplexing individual.
0: Now, a- as you were putting this all together, did you unearth all this um, information in a chronological order? I mean, did you follow him back through his trail yeah. here so it was pretty easy for you to put this together?
1: Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say easy because it <laughs> was, like you said, it was complicated, but at the same time you're uh you know I wanted to tell it in the simplest way possible so the reader wouldn't be confused you know but it was for me just following all these different identities usually I write about one person but you know <laughs> this person is like six you know all these different identities to follow and each trail had a population of people who knew him in each segment of his life so I got to as many people as I can. I'm sure I miss I missed some as well out there. I mean, um you know, he just was out and about. He was never it didn't seem he was ever, you know, alone.
0: Well there was one as you mentioned, there was one four year period of his life yeah. where he just disappeared.
1: Yeah. That you know, there's various theories. Some people say he was hiding in New York City. But one thing is clear, he came out at Fifth at on Fifth Avenue and even before that. He was walking his dog, a purebred Gordon Setter, and that's how he began to meet people. And there was one early sighting of him in New York that I mentioned in the book where, you know, he's walking his dog and he he meets these two very young girls, uh, teenagers, really. And they say, who are you? And he wouldn't show them at first. And finally, he shows them in his wallet. Rockefeller. So that was an early sighting. And I talked to several people who saw him in the beginning in New York. Now, um...
0: One of the things that this book makes me think is, you know, the importance of story in in narrative in our lives, in our own self definitions. And uh, during his trial, at one point, they were trying to originally they he his lawyer was just going to try to continue the snow job kind of, but he fired that lawyer.
1: Right. Yeah. He was gonna. He was going to. Uh uh, present him as a as a you know which I think he was a father who had lost his daughter but yeah he he got a new lawyer and and uh, the next thing we knew he pled insanity at his trial and so he never testified and um, well there were two different sets of psychiatrists who examined him and the psychiatrist for the defense said he was insane uh, and that he didn't know right from wrong and that he had been coming to, he came to America, lost his mind, had a psychic break uh, after losing his daughter, and throughout his life here, had created all these crazy identities. But the prosecution's psychiatrist said, one of them uh, said that he thought he was, you know, faking the the uh, symptoms of insanity, and that he was knew exactly what he was doing, and the jury, which found him guilty on most of the serious charges, seemed to agree with that with that.
0: As uh, I think one of the DA's, uh, prosecution DA says, there's no dsm four diagnosis for liar.
1: That's right. That's what they said, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, I mean, he was really good at this, so we'll see. He didn't, you know, maybe with this next trial uh, that's expected to start in California for, you know, they charged him on March 15th in the murder case of one of the uh, members of the couple, John Soas, whose bones were found uh what 20 years ago 15 years ago in San Marino, um, will he testify at that trial? Uh, you know, another chapter is opening?
0: Well, this also, um, as I say, the power of this book is that it's a it's a ripping yarn <laughs> to, to read. Oh, it's really thank quite you. a page turner. And it makes you think about how we define ourselves in terms of the stories we tell
1: right yeah i mean we tell ourselves stories um joan didion said it we tell ourselves stories in order to live so we we make up our own stories about who we are and what we are in our minds and this this man just came up with these fantastic stories i mean he forgot about fact and just embraced fiction and you know it would be like you know catch me if you can or some of the other stories of great imposters, uh, if not for this missing persons case, which turns it, you know, turns it on its head a bit. Uh, but, yeah, he was an amazing storyteller. And who knows what he could have done if he hadn't, if he had, you know, told stories about the truth and really embraced a, a factual life. Uh, who knows what he might have been. You know, the other thing this made me think is, is that uh,
0: this guy – as good as he was at telling stories, ultimately undid himself. Mm-hmm. And you have to wonder how many people there are out there who are just a little bit better than he is. Yeah. <laughs> you mean <laughs> not? Yeah, living, people who are serial imposters who are successful. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, Do you, did you did you consider that when you were writing this book? Y-
1: yeah, I did. I, I studied it a bit, and I was going to include a part, of, a section about others imposters throughout history. It didn't really fit in this book, but mm-hmm. I studied it quite a bit. Yeah, you know, I mean, as you said before, you know, we have a we're we're living in a culture of liars, and you know, it's in the from Bernie Madoff to on down. You know, we're living in a world where so many people resort to a lie instead of telling the truth. And, uh, but th- in this case, it is the extreme of extremes, you know. And it, he wasn't, in, the crazy thing, he wasn't, in, in some cases he was uh, seeking money, but later in life when he really didn't need money, when he, you know, when he had uh, money from his job on Wall Street or when he ha- was married and his wife was making a s- sizable salary, he really did wasn't seeking money there was no investment deal offered he was just wanted your trust that's what he was stealing
0: mark could you talk to us about what you're working on now are you going to uh... follow the follow-up trial of
1: course yes i want to i definitely want to follow the uh... the trial in california when it happens and uh... Uh, so that I'm really curious to see what happens next. Like I say, this story, you know, is seems unending. I know every, I mean, you want a book to have a, a an ending, but this one seems to be just continuing. So that I'll be curious to see what happens next. I've been speaking
0: with Mark Seal. His new book is The Man in the Rockefeller Suit, The Astonishing Rise and Spectacular Fall of a Serial Imposter. Thank you for joining me, Mark.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.